the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a great question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. This is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. It's time now for Armchair Politics. Join host Tom Sumner for this weekly reality check on current events in local, state, and national politics and the real issues that really matter. You, too, can be part of Armchair Politics. Find us on Facebook. We let the dogs off their leash. Stay tuned. Because it's on now. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner program. Joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes our roundtable regulars on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter. Good morning, Henry. Good morning. And joining us for today's edition of Armchair Politics, political operative Bobby Clayton Walton. Good morning, Bobby. Hi. Good morning, guys. Hi, Bobby. Good morning. Hey. Well, as you all know, I always start out with uh, a couple of quotes, and, and then we get into some local, state, national headlines about uh, politics and uh, current events and so on, plus the X-Files coming up toward the uh, end of our, our two-hour session. So we'll start out, as I always do, with uh, finish the quote, where I ask you, how would you finish this quote? And it goes like this. Government loses its claim to legitimacy when it what? Mm. When it's... Uh when it doesn't deliver. answer the yeah, phone. Yeah. Fails to deliver, something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. When it violates the rights of the people. 
Well, you're, you're both very close to what the original quote was. It's uh, government loses its claim to legitimacy when it fails to fulfill its obligations. Yeah. Hmm. And that quote came from American writer Martin Gross. Oh, oh. Who is he? I, I'm not familiar with his work, I have to admit. I, I came across the quote and, and was really moved by it, but I, I had to even look up, Henry, that he was an American writer. Do you know anything about him, Paul? <laughs> no, I don't. I've heard the name, but that's about all. I don't know anything more than that. Well, so, uh, I'm looking him up right now online. Let's see what we find out. Oh. <laughs> okay. Oh, so, he was convicted of first-degree murder. No, maybe not that guy. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a different, different guy. <laughs> okay, well, well I'm sure he knows the system pretty well. Um, yeah, yeah. In, yeah. in any event, uh, the one of the quotes that caught my attention this week was uh, this one. If you're not vaccinated, you're part of the problem. Uh, Governor Whitmer? No, that's a great was guess. Was that Joe Biden? No, it was... Uh, not Joe Biden? It was... Like Dr. Fauci? No. Oh, that's cool. No, it was yeah. Republican Governor Jim Justice. Oh, oh, oh my goodness. He oh, issued a stark warning to West Virginians on Tuesday as he urged more of his state's residents to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Well, good for him. Yeah. Is it important? Go ahead, Bobby. I was going to say, didn't he used to be a Democrat? I don't it know. Seems like, it, seems like, it seems like maybe he did. I'm not sure. Well, maybe that was he, often the case in West Virginia for a lot of people over the, over the years. Yeah. Maybe he's right. coming It could have probably been true of a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been true of a lot of people. Right. Um, is is it important for leaders from both parties to encourage vaccination to get the U.S. to herd immunity? Oh yeah, of course. The strangest thing is, this I is think it's, it's because so I think if they're meeting, the, okay, yeah, ahead, if Bob. they're meeting their government obligation, as Mr. Gross told us, then they would be. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the only way to pull the country together, that they both mu most must be working toward common cause, and that's common yeah. cause for all of us. As I say, one of the strangest things about this pandemic is that it's become so partisan. I mean, it really shouldn't be. The, the, uh, the virus isn't partisan. It'll attack anybody. But, I mean, wearing a mask, getting a shot, you know, so many details about this whole pandemic have, have divided us along partisan lines. Very strange. Well, I I think it was um, I think it was a it was a weapon used against us and a tool uh, for people who wanted to divide us to uh, to make it an issue. I, I'm I'm sorry, you're cutting out on me. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm maybe I'm not holding the phone close enough. I said I think it, it was a weapon used against us, but also a tool that people who wanted to divide the population to divert us from the other things that we needed to pay attention to, to cause us to squabble over things that are really in our best interest. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. That's, yeah I'd say, as I say, it's a thing like the, like the pandemic is the, is the one issue that should not have been a partisan issue, but somehow it evolved that way. I mean, <laughs> You can point to Trump a little bit, but it really goes beyond Trump in so many ways, I think. Uh, 
Do you think that part of the problem is that the tail is wagging the dog, that the leadership is following conversations yeah. of people out there in the field that don't know uh, anything about the real issues, have not really dwelled in them? And in order to pick up votes, did you go after those kind of people? Well, yeah, I think you might. I think you might be onto something, Henry. I, I, I was just going to comment that it seems as though the divide is there, and everything is being um, programmed through it. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul. You said this issue shouldn't shouldn't be divisive. It shouldn't be drawn along party lines, but everything is now. You're right. You're exactly right. I mean, so many things are. Uh, even, as I say, in terms of getting a shot, wearing a mask. Paper and plastic. Um, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Paper straws. Yeah, and um, as an observation, I think what Paul said, I mean, what uh, Henry said is also true in that the people who care deeply enough to become entrenched, you know, they're not leaving their minds open to possible change, are the ones more likely to show up on election day and vote. So uh, following the tail, the dog following the tail, is not too mm-hmm. far off of, of what works. And, yeah. and I've, I've said that many times, that we need to sometimes forgive our leaders and look at issues and not at... <clears throat> the culture of the people who are weaving the leaders back and forth and daring them to compromise and stuff like that, work for common cause. But uh, we, we instead, we, we, we criticize our leader and further d- divide, make the causes more severe. And Henry, you've brought, brought, that, fr- you've brought that phrase up uh, a few times in the last uh, several months, and every time you do, I, I intend to remind myself to rewatch that movie, Wag the Dog. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. That is such yeah. a that is such a tremendous movie, and and it deserves a rewatching. And I, I think I will. And one of these days, uh, Paul and and maybe Bobby and Henry as well, we should uh, we should revisit. Uh, Paul and I have done this a couple times. Political movies. Oh yeah, yeah. We, didn't we do that yeah. one time around the Academy Awards t- time or something? Yeah, yeah I think so. We were, we were yeah. just looking for something fun to do that was sort of tied yeah. to movies and television, and we talked about you know the the. Oh, I think there was a political movie. I think it might have been one of the Lincoln movies was up for an award. Uh, it may have been. Yeah, yeah. And, Lincoln. And, oh, that was a great movie. Yeah, and so we we did a whole show or or a segment, a part of a show. <laughs> Um, dedicated to movies that were made about politics. I just recently uh, saw the last. I, I just recently uh, saw the last hurrah again. Oh, that's a great old movie. Yeah, I gee, I haven't seen that for a long time. That's true. Yeah, you know the the, the Manchurian the Manchurian candidate is one that um, that's sort of scary, but there are some very funny ones too. Yeah, there, there's the one, I can't think of the mayor in Chicago in the 30s or 20s, or maybe the teens. Uh, great movie. Um, Orson Welles played the parts, I think. Oh, Citizen Kane? Yes, yes, that was oh, a great movie. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, that I was... I don't think that was Chicago. Oh, that was, yeah, that wasn't Chicago. That was uh, uh, California. But was it, that? And, and, and it oh. was actually about... Um, 
the publisher. Uh, first, William Randolph. William, William, Rand- Randolph, William Randolph, Randolph, Randolph first. first. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there were some of those great ones about Huey Long too. Uh, what was the uh, one I bought? Uh, uh, who was Huey's brother? Um, Earl Long. Earl Long. A funny one called Earl Long. Uh, Blaze. Blaze about Earl Long. I oh right! Oh about yeah, Blaze Paul, Star, the stripper. With Paul. That's Nguyen. right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there've been some great ones. We sh- we should probably uh do that again sometime. But here's here's another uh, uh another quote. I don't know if we get if we've got time to get it all in before the break, but I'm going to give it a shot. We are witnessing a concerted attempt to destabilize the democratic process and delegitimize our multiracial democracy carried out in full view of the American people. Hmm. Don't know. That yeah, was uh, Hillary Clinton. She oh, she oh. called she called out the Republican-led crackdown on voting rights and urged Americans to fight for access to the ballot box in an op-ed published last Wednesday. Clinton wrote the op-ed for Democracy Docket, the progressive platform founded by former Clinton campaign counsel Mark Elias. Are GOP-led efforts to reform voting geared to exclude minorities or make Republicans the majority? Yeah, I think both of those kind of fit <laughs> together in many ways. Although, you know, I, I made a, in, in my column a month or two ago for East Village, I made a comment that there could be some unintended consequences to this voting limitation because historically... Republicans have had the advantage in absentee ballots. I mean, it wasn't true in 2020, obviously, but historically the absentee vote has has been a bit more Republican. And the the other thing is that that it seems like sometimes the more you try and deny somebody a right, the more they are likely to exercise it. There's a couple examples where the attempts to to limit the right to vote actually increased minority turnout because of the the reaction against the the, uh, the limitations. So, as I say, there may be some unintended consequences for Republicans in these various attempts to limit the vote. You know, I, I don't see anything wrong with the <clears throat> with the Georgia law that requires a ballot identification card for individuals who requ- who wish to cast a ballot. A voter who needs to provide a driver's license number or other types of identification numbers should have no qualms with that. And the law also requires uh, voters to uh, request absentee ballots no later than 11 days prior to the election. And, you know, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't see how that impairs or restricts uh, the right to vote. Well, and it depends. I think it depends, Henry. In some states, I know Texas is one. They will accept um, an, an ID card uh, for a, um, a gun owner. They will accept right. an ID card for uh, various other things, but will not accept a student ID card. And so, depending upon how the law is written and how they define identification. I know uh, the law here in Michigan that was just voted 
on regarding Bobby, ID I have to interrupt. Allowed. We, we have to take a short break here. We'll be <laughs> right back. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place 
where you never get harmed. A magical place with magical charms. Indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Welcome back to today's edition of Armchair Politics featuring uh, our uh, roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter joined by Bobby Clayton Walton. Just before the break, uh, Bobby, I, I, I cut you off and I want to give you a chance to finish your finish your thought as, as I always do. It's usually Henry that gets cut off. <laughs> I know. I yeah. took over everybody's crowd. <laughs> 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 yeah. I was I was commenting on the uh, legislation that was introduced here in Michigan regarding identification on absentee ballots, and I noted that instead of just a photocopy of your uh, picture ID, you would be allowed to submit, I believe it's your driver's license number or the last four numbers of your Social Security number along with your ballot application. So they softened um, the hard edges of the requirement of a photocopy of your ID, uh, which makes it more reasonable. But I noted to the committee when I went to testify on some of this legislation that I always say that, I continue to say that your signature is the best form of ID because you, nobody else can sign your name exactly the way you do. And they have technology. There's no reason why we can't. Um, engage in getting the technology that could allow better verification of signatures so that if you sign your application and you send it in, it can be put through the technology reader and they could determine whether it's authentic or not because pressure of the pen and various other things can make a difference. Yeah, that, that could be a solution. Yeah. But, but I don't know why we should have to go through all of that since voting itself is supposed to be define with some degree of integrity. Um, oh, yeah. And it should not be, um, people should not be coerced to vote and they should not be denied the right to vote. It's, a, it's American. Right. And the, and the reality but is Henry, there isn't so much evidence of cheating. I mean, you know, there's just not that much evidence of, of serious organized cheating going on. There's a few random cases here or there, but all these stories about massive voting cheating just never never really come to fruition. And you know, right. that's rather right. unique. Uh, can I just finish the point? Uh, that's rather unique because both Democrats and Republicans have not found uh, widespread degrees of voting fraud. That's true. Yeah. Oh, I, uh, you know. And what I, what I wanted to add to your comment about integrity, Henry, is the, uh, the government must have integrity also. Yes, that's where it should begin. Yeah, and so um, I don't see any reason why we can't use the best technology to make it as easy as possible for people to vote instead of placing more and more barriers in their way. I agree. Well, I don't want to see us do DNA testing or anything. <laughs> but I wouldn't mind if we screen people for COVID. <laughs> but, but technology is here to stay, guys. If we don't use it now, the new generation will. And we should use it for the best purposes. Yes. 
Well, let's move on to some uh, some local things here. We have, um, let's see, uh, operating hours at Flint City Hall expanded Monday as part of the city's reopening plan amid the COVID-19 pandemic. The expended hours uh, will be from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. The expanded hours at Flint City Hall are part of the ongoing rollout of Mayor Sheldon Neely's reopening plan as the community continues to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. Is this a good sign with regard to returning to pre-pandemic normal in Flint? Uh, oh, uh, it's a good back. beginning. It's a beginning. Yeah, uh, yeah. and that's that's what we should be doing. I give Neely uh, great praises for what he did. And I hope this is not the only one of the likes of this kind of endeavor throughout the state. I, I think that other, I hope that other communities will do likewise to help pull together uh, the state as a, as, a, as a single unit that believes in coming back together, opening businesses up, Getting on with their everyday lives. Yeah, it yeah, seems and, like we're going that direction. Making the government accessible to people also, I think, in addition to just the physical possibilities of needing to be there, it also opens it up to uh, op inviting trust again, because trust yes. in government has been uh, something we've discussed before. Good point. Good point, Bobby. Yeah. And, and I like to, and adding to that, Neely invited Republicans and Democrats equally, and they were well represented from the state and local level. And there was no uh, bickering or gun shooting or anything like that. It was well handled with respect and dignity. And the police were present, and they looked good uh, to this audience, and this t as well as the TV folks, who who were watching this event to see if they could glean any kind of a reaction, negative reaction to it, or did it have substance and relevance and believability and stuff like that. I, I, thought, it, I thought the event was really great. Yeah. Well, anytime you can bring people together in common cause or common purpose, um, forgetting any differences that we may have is always good, Henry. Yeah, these days yeah. especially. It's no small, no small task. Yes. Well, Flint police are hoping that the addition of a piloted helicopter can help them cut into rising violent crime in the city and better protect officers on the ground. Police Chief Terrence Green told members of the city council Monday he wants to adjust his budget to spend $304,000 for three months of helicopter coverage, a request the council sent back to a committee for further review. During the three months the program is in place, Green said they can, the city can monitor and evaluate before deciding whether to discontinue or try something longer or more. Is this a good idea? Why is it so expensive? $300,000 yeah, for yeah. three months. That's $100,000 yeah. a month. And it's only one airplane doing the surveillance. Have... Why? Haven't we haven't we had the state helicopter, the, the state police helicopter regularly? We, well, I always he, often hear it, you know, going around around the city in, in the middle of the night. So it's been there. I mean, I, I really don't know what kind of role it plays in crime control. If some guy's robbing a Seven Eleven at midnight, I don't know what role a helicopter plays in that kind of thing. But I'll defer to the criminal justice experts on that one. But but again, I was concerned about the cost, as Henry was. 
of three hundred thousand dollars yeah, in three months. Yeah, adding on to that, Paul, um, my question would be: Have they described to the committee that's going to be studying this exactly how that helicopter would be used and coordinated with any ground um, response? Because the helicopter certainly can't be used to arrest people. But um, exactly. generally, when you watch it, yeah, when you watch them on TV, they have, you know, they have the, the the troopers in their cars on the ground, and then they have the helicopter identifying people and and sending the information. Yeah, so. Yeah. I would I would wonder what kind of plan they had, or are they just trying to make use of the COVID money? You know, as soon as you get a pile of money coming in <laughs> to any city. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. I've seen that the many times, Bobby. The rate, right? I've seen that <laughs> yeah. in, in government and in nonprofit organizations. Anytime you have a group of people and you tell them um, that you have a pot of money, the number of ideas on how to spend that money is equal to the number of people that you just told. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and if, there's a dead, if there's a deadline, there's always a, a memo that goes out that says, be sure and spend your money by the end of the year or we won't get it again next year. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. the, yeah, the, buy up all the envelopes you can. The famous right. use, use it or lose it memo. Right. And, and then yeah. this is a process that also divides us up. The people that don't get it go away mad and never come back to the table again. <laughs> yeah, that's the true. The people that use it. Yeah. yeah. So we well, probably goes, need a different way goes, of communicating that. Yeah, Henry, that goes back to a, a book I've talked about before, The Politics of the Budgetary Process. Because what you're talking about is all of that, um, that shuffling around, trying to move other people out of the way so you can get a piece of the pie. Right, <laughs> right. No. Well, that seems like a good segue into this next piece. The line of Flint residents who spoke to U.S. District Judge Judith Levy on Tuesday, uh, yesterday actually, was just, uh, was just 15 people deep, but each one carried the same message about a $641 million mm. water crisis settlement that she must decide whether to accept or reject. This is not justice for Flint said former Flint Mayor Karen Weaver, one of the objectors, we will not settle for the crumbs that have been put before us. Uh, Levy gave the proposed settlement preliminary approval in January, triggering the registration of more than 50,000 people who claimed they were harmed by Flint water while the city was being run by state-appointed emergency managers. After a three-day fairness hearing this week, the judge uh, must make a final decision whether the settlement of civil lawsuits by residents against the state of Michigan, City of Flint, McLaren Regional Medical Center, and Row Professional Services is fair, reasonable, and adequate. Levy surprised some of the uh, objectors at Tuesday's portion of the hearing by appearing before them in person in the Genesee uh, Circuit courtroom of Judge Joseph Farah hearing their grievances face to face. Just steps outside the courtroom where Flint residents were objecting to the Fairness Flint water uh, case in Michigan, protesters held a news conference to argue that attorneys are taking too much settlement money. President of the Michigan Lawsuit Abuse uh, Watch, Robert Dorigo, uh, or Robert Dorigo Jones, rather, set up the July 13th rally to denounce the attorneys representing Flint residents for taking 32% of a landmark $641 million settlement 
which amounts to approximately $202 million. Should this settlement be rejected, and what about the attorney fees? The market has set yeah. up. Well, I know about 30% is typical for normal for, for, for a lot of normal civil cases, but I've, I've also read that for some of these massive ones, I'm thinking of the tobacco settlement and perhaps this one, that it's, it's fairly common to reduce that 30% to something a lot less, maybe around 10%. I, I, I mean, again, I, I don't know how common it is or how often it happens, but these massive lawsuits, uh, at least frequently, will accept something less than 30% of the, of the settlement. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of precedents on uh, the cost throughout the country for massive settlements like that, Paul. And they, yeah, I, I, I know. Right. You know I, I, kind of a normal lawsuit where you're suing somebody for medical malpractice, and we're talking about you know one million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars. The thirty percent is common, but when we're talking about six hundred million, uh, that's something else again. But remember, this case was so politicized that every lawyer that thought he was a lawyer came to Flint to engage in the process and to offer a settlement price. It was a full employment program for the lawyers. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I recall all the edges. It really was. Call so-and-so and and we'll take your case. Yeah, Yeah. I just wonder how much good is going to come of any money that people get. I mean, um, spread over how many people that might be collecting some money, it's going to be such a small amount. Well, it's going to be cut by, what, 50,000 people that registered for it? Yes, yeah, that's the number I heard, yeah. yeah. And it's mostly, I've heard, it's going to, the grade bulk is going to go to kids, is my understanding, about 80% of it or so, 70 yeah, percent I think so. Yeah. Yeah, well, the kids won't determine how it's spent. I mean, Yeah, it will but be... and exactly how it's going to be spent for the kids, I really don't know. Um, right. All right. This is one of those things where I recognize that giving people money is one of the best ways to help people. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes it's not, and sometimes providing medical care or services or you know counseling or something else might be a better use of the yeah. money. Yeah. Yeah. Money's the money is the solution, except when it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's a quote that we need to call back someday. That's right. Use that for next week's quote. Who made that quote? I, I don't know. I, I I think I picked it up somewhere along the line, but I'll gladly take credit for it. Um, oh, a water? Bring it back in about six. Yeah, bring it back in about six months and see if we remember. Yeah, right. There you go. Uh, a water main break at the intersection of East Court Street and Maxine Street in Flint's College Cultural Area is being currently repaired by contractor Spalding de Decker. The city was notified of the water main break at 4.30 or 3.40 a.m. Sunday, July 11th, according to an update on, con- on the contractor's website. However, the contractor could not return to operate on the site until the next morning. The water main that broke was a 24-inch line that ran along East Court Street, Flint Director of Public Works Michael Brown said. 
These mains hold significantly more water than the typical 8-inch lines. An 8-inch line in that area has previously had problems, Brown said. He added everyone in the area has water at this time. A 12-inch water line broke on Monday morning, which is also being operated on around the clock, Brown said. How much will it take to make the Flint municipal water system whole? No, they, they, I mean this. This is kind of in my backyard over in East Court area here, and I, I mean they, they spent all a year ago. They spent loads of time tearing up the street, putting in brand new pipes and everything else, and all of a sudden now, this last week we've had I think somebody said fourteen or fifteen breaks, and a couple of really huge sinkholes on Court Street. I, uh, mm. I mean I, I don't know the engineering of it, but it sure is. It's, Considering it's it's all all brand new pipes, it's astonishing to see what's going on there. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that is that does that does make a lot for curiosity because most most water main breaks occur in the winter when you have the shifting of the earth's surfaces. Yeah, and and we got these new pipes here, and everything is new and just been done. It is kind of problematic to see this these multiple breaks all of a sudden. But maybe they, they were going to happen anyway. This wasn't a service line, though, Henry. This this was a, a water main break. Yeah. yeah. What's the, what's the uh, difference? The service lines are the ones that have been replaced. Right, to the houses. But the service line comes off of the main line, doesn't it? Yeah, and goes to the house. And those are yeah. the ones that have been replaced. The okay. water mains yeah. themselves. Okay. I see. Yeah, I, I see what the problem is. Gotcha. I okay. thought they were yeah, the they, main. Well. Go ahead, Bobby. Um, wasn't that the issue years ago when we were talking about replacing the service lines was that the water mains were so old <laughs> that that they needed also to be considered as part of the replacement system. Yeah. But I wanted to ask a question about the sinkholes because I did see a picture of a huge sinkhole over there, Paul, and... Is the sinkhole a result of the break, or is the sinkhole separate? And maybe the shifting of the ground, as Henry talked about, which I caused the sinkhole part of the problem with the main? Yeah. Well, water about, about these, these, these water lines are brand new. They, they put them in just a year ago. In fact, I, I, I drove by periodically and would see these brand new blue pipes going into the ground, and those are the ones that cracked somehow. And then they resurfaced the road. It was, a, it was driving on Core Street was really very nice for a while. Now it's all chopped up again because of all the redigging for these these new new lines they're repairing or replacing. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know exactly the cause of the sinkhole. But uh, there have been it was astonishing. It was a crater. I was I was joking with somebody we could declare it a national park. I mean, <laughs> another Grand Canyon here in Flint, Michigan. But guys, uh, now fill it in. You say this is a water main break. Now, the life cycle of a water main is no longer than 50 years. I think that's what the national standard is. you got to replace those. And these are probably 50 years ago would be less than 1950. Well, these, these are brand new, though. These are put in less yeah, than the last year. Yeah, but we're talking about the water main that, uh, that Bobby was referring to, uh, the, the line that brings the water in from its source. Uh, and feeds it into the secondary lines that go into distribution lines to houses and stuff. Going back to the water, um, where did, is the Karagnandi waterway still uh, not providing water to Flint 
And where did they bring in the main from that source? Because I know the some of the streets were torn up for a while to bring in the water main, and I haven't heard anything lately about that agreement between the Flint City and the Carignandi Waterway um, organization on whether that was other result. I've gotten confused about that because I, at at one point it sounded like Carignandi was going to be the secondary system. That's what yeah. I thought, too. Yes, yeah. that's what I thought. And there was some manipulation of pipes. There was the the sale of a pipe that went from Flint to Detroit to Carignandi, and then they decided they wanted that back as part of the deal when we went back on the Detroit system. <clears throat> and I've, I've, to be honest with you, I've lost track. But the water main... That secondary main that's bringing water from Port Huron comes through down Carpenter Coldwater Road, and it enters the waste, the water treatment plant. And uh, all water sources really should be directed to the water treatment plant, Van Dort Highway and the Flint River, so that if yeah. we needed the water to be uh, have secondary treatment for some reason, we have breaks or something like that, and this new line it could go through the treatment process at Flint. So okay, I, that's, I, yeah. That's clearer. Yeah, although I might mention this this current break is not the first time we've had, a, on Court Street, we've had a couple of breaks within the last year or so, not quite as severe as this last one, but this is not the first time something like that has happened with these brand new lines. Well, this is the very thing we talked about you know, over the last several years, as we've been talking about the the Flint water crisis, if the the service lines going to people's houses had not been properly cared for, not not just with the with the lead leach um, event that occurred, but in the in the history of maintaining the water system, once we got those new uh, service lines in, what were we going to do about the rest of the water system that had been ignored all these years? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and I think that was part of the funding issue a few years ago because I know there was some money that uh, that came in from the Federal Department of Transportation for um, resurfacing and also, I think, curbs and gutters. Um, but it had to also be funded through the, the state, and I think it was one of those twinned things where if you didn't do one thing, you didn't get the money to do the other, and I don't think it was ever followed through, but it had to do with water mains. Well, it just it just goes to show, regardless of what they do with the uh, water crisis settlement money, there are still water issues that are going to be facing Flint for some time to come. That's true. That's true. Well, yeah, water is really a problem. It, it is a problem. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting when you read um, Anna Clark's book where she tracks the history of water treatment in American cities and then, you know, zeroes in on the Flint problems. It's good water hasn't been around that long and was fairly short-lived. Yeah. Yeah. 
Anyway, we got to yeah. we got to take well, a break. I, yeah, and it's okay. part of the infrastructure uh, um, legislation that's currently being argued over, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. Although mostly people yeah. are, are trying to pretend that it's just about roads and bridges. Um, California would love right. to have this water, guys. Yes, they would. <laughs> yes, they would. Anyway, yeah. we're going to take a short yeah. break. We'll be back with uh, more armchair politics on the Tom Sumner program right Hello after there, this. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in edible arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for edible arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you 
that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue with today's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program, featuring Paul Rosicki, Henry Hatter, and joining us today, Bobby Clayton Walton. The Michigan Supreme Court will soon hear arguments in what could be a landmark case for LGBTQ rights. The High Court announced it will hear an appeal of a lawsuit against the Michigan Department of Civil Rights filed by two businesses that denied service to LGBTQ people based on their religious beliefs. The case could bring a definitive answer to a long-running argument over whether Michigan's 1976 civil rights law should ban discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. The Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act guarantees protections for people based on religion, race, color, nationality, age, sex, height, weight, family, and marital status. LGBTQ advocates argue protections under sex should broadly apply to gay, bisexual, and transgender people. Democratic lawmakers have pushed for legislation to add legal protections for LGBTQ people, but the latest bill hasn't moved forward. The upcoming case takes on greater significance with the apparent failure of a petition initiative that sought to add LGBTQ protections to the law. The initiative would have given the Michigan legislature 40 days to pass a bill creating those protections before sending the questions or the question, to voters in November 2022. With legislation stalled and the petition initiative seemingly doomed, the Supreme Court could be the best hope for supporters of making LGBTQ people a protected class. Democrats hold a 4-3 to three majority on the court. How do you think the court will rule? Hmm. Well... Um, I, think I think there's a possibility to go that way. Go ahead. Henry, yeah, go, I, go I, ahead. Henry I, was trying to squeeze in there. Oh, go first. ahead, Henry. Um, you know, I, it's funny. I don't think that that belongs in the court. I think that belongs that belongs to a referendum to the people because that has to deal with a value system. And there are people, all of a sudden, you're asking people to change their values. And some of the people are really staunch in their values about um, gender and stuff like that. And uh, I think the people, as a, as a source of authority, should make that decision. It should be go to the referendum. The courts are limited in their number. They can't decide for everybody. Let the people do it. I'm sorry. That's um, it. Yeah, Henry, ahead, I think you're, you're opening the door to a lot of uh, slippery slope kind of 
of things in that generality because people could be, you know, my value system could be that um, I hate men and I refuse to serve them in my restaurant. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it just really would be awful. But um, there has been there has been precedence. Years ago, I prepared uh, some testimony before the Civil Rights Commission on bullying in schools because there was uh, legislation before um, before the state on bullying policy, and one of the things had to do with what they called enumeration, which is what Elliot Larson does. It enumerates the, the qualities that uh, people cannot be discriminated against because of holding those qualities. And the whole idea of gender discrimination, there have been court cases uh, regarding federal protections. Um, the civil rights laws that apply federally have come to the courts and the Title IX uh, law, which does involve sex discrimination in schools and academic institutions, has been found to apply to gender identity and other kinds of gender uh, qualities in addition to just sex. So there's precedent, and it's possible the court could call on those precedents. Hey, Bobby, by the way, I, I've got a solution to your uh, keeping men out of your restaurant. Make it a make it a uh, yeah. make it a yogurt bar <laughs> <laughs> with carrot with carrot juice. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, you guys are really bad. <laughs> <laughs> or if you want to keep everybody out, make it Brussels sprouts. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> yeah, declare bankruptcy and retire. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, the Michigan Supreme Court has rejected uh, the Independent Citizens Redistricting Committee's request for an extension of the deadline to draw the state's new political maps. Um, The commission made the request due to delayed release of complete 2020 census data. In an order released Friday, the Supreme Court ruled that a deadline extension to December is unwarranted, leaving commissioners to rely on preliminary census data. The 13-member redistricting commission formed by a successful 2018 ballot initiative remains constitutionally obligated to redraw the state's congressional state house and state senate political district maps based on several factors including the latest U.S. Census data by November 1st. The U.S. Census Bureau citing pandemic um, related delays announced in February that complete redistricting data won't be made available uh, to states until September 30th, 2021. Can the redistricting committee meet its deadline? That's going to be tough. I mean, in fact, the one question I had that I wasn't clear about is how different is the preliminary census data from the final census data? I mean, how much adjustment normally takes place between those two sets of numbers oh i think i think one's one's in pencil and the other's typed (laughs) that's uh, That's probably close to true (laughs) i I, know you're probably right but i just wondered even if we go ahead with the preliminary numbers are we going to end up with districts there we later find out are kind of out of sync because they've some have got too many people others have too few and so forth and so on uh, I, I, again, I just don't know how, how different those two sets of numbers are. Yeah. I also was thinking about the technology because, you know, Henry and I being lovers of technology, um, there's been software available for years in redistricting. I know 
it's been used probably in beginning, at least I know of, in 2000 redistricting, which can do fairly accurate, quick uh, redistricting calculations. And so I don't know what the onerous task would be if they get the numbers and they can apply it to the software and then decide whether what is produced actually meets what it is they're looking for. Well, wasn't there one issue, though, but about some allowing time for public response, I, I thought, in that whole business, too? Well, yeah, we talked about that yeah, a few weeks ago, Paul. We were asking, if they don't have the numbers yet, how can they hold the public meetings they were holding? Right, right. Yeah, and, and I, thought, I thought even after they got the final map, there was supposed to be a time for a public response to that. And, and with, with the time frame they're talking about, it, it's, it's going to be so brief there'd be barely a time for a couple of meetings, if there, even if, if that many. Yeah. Well, they might be glad that they don't have time for a lot of meetings. It may um, be. That's true. Usually, That's true. Yeah. <laughs> usually those meetings wind up being gripe sessions. Yeah. Also, it isn't just me that thinks that. <laughs> <laughs> those of us who observe <laughs> yeah. might conclude... Well, let's see. Uh, if I got time to get this in, maybe. Yeah, we'll we'll squeeze it in before the top of the hour. The uh, Unlock Michigan campaign is now one step closer to accomplishing its goal of repealing the law used by Governor Gretchen Whitmer to issue emergency orders during the first six months of the pandemic. The Michigan Board of State canvassers unanimously certified a petition from Unlock Michigan on Tuesday morning that would repeal the Emergency Powers of the Governor Act of 1945, which Governor Whitmer used to declare and extend a state of emergency during the pandemic, giving her broad executive powers. The Tuesday vote came after the Michigan Supreme Court ordered the Board of State canvassers to certify the petition after the bipartisan canvassing board deadlocked 2-2 two to two in an April vote. The petition initiative gathered well over the necessary 340,000 signatures needed to force either action in the legislature or a statewide vote to repeal the law. Is this the end of the 1945 Emergency Powers of the Governor Act? Well, of course, the, the courts have already kind of brought an end to that, to the application of that law already. So this almost strikes me as a bit of overkill because... Well, yeah, but the court stopped short of of uh, turning the law over. Yeah, they what they did was they ruled unconstitutional the extensions. Yeah, yeah. So at least I think that's yeah. how they how they uh, couched it. This now well, anything is, that can be is setting it up for a, a possible appearance on the twenty twenty ballot. But it gives the legislature a chance to do what they've been wanting to do all along, and that's repeal the entire thing. Yeah. Um, one of the things about legislation, as we all know, is what you can legislate in, you can legislate out. So even if this legislature decides to go forward and successfully takes that power away, a future legislature can bring it back. So... It's not like it's in the Constitution. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Well, with that, we uh, 
We have to break here. we got to bring an end to the uh, first half of Armchair Politics. We'll be back in a couple of minutes with the second half of today's edition of Armchair Politics, featuring our roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined this week by Bobby Clayton Walton. And uh, we, we break here at the top of the hour for show ID, and we've got... Yeah, we've got a couple more things from Lansing, and then we'll move on to Washington in the next hour. Plus, don't forget, coming up toward the end of the show, we'll have uh, today's edition of the X-Files on Armchair Politics, and I always look forward to that. There's a couple of interesting ones today, as, as there always are. Anyway, we'll take a short break. We'll be back with more Armchair Politics and the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, right I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 